I mean, there's that investigative journalist, Tom Nugent. He described you in The Keepers as a bulldog. So, I mean, what do you think he means by that from where you're sitting? Well, it's not my favorite term. Yeah. I think it sounds really rough. Mm -hmm. But Tom is Tom, and Tom is such an amazing journalist that he gets to say whatever he wants. (laughs) I prefer the term badass. Me too. And yeah, and Kathy was a badass. Hi, Jillian here, and welcome to Let the Women Do the Work, the podcast where we look at true crime from the perspectives of the women involved. Because in all these stories, there's a woman inside, outside, beside, or affected by it all. And in this episode, we'll follow a real-life Nancy Drew who took it upon herself to investigate the murder of someone from her past and ended up unearthing some long-held truths about trauma and abuse that still ripple out to the present. Her name is Gemma Hoskins, and if you've seen the Netflix docuseries The Keepers, you know her vibe and her work. Gemma is a down-to-earth dog lover, retired teacher, and no-bullshit citizen detective of sorts. And being in her 60s from Baltimore, she grew up in a time and community that was very, very Catholic. In the 1960s, the archdiocese and clergy members of Baltimore were more than just faith leaders. They held real power, and still do. So when Gemma was admitted to the top all-girls Catholic school in the city, she was ecstatic, as everyone who got into Archbishop Keogh was. Gemma's high school years went on to be filled with camaraderie and growth. She looks back on her time there with loads of nostalgia, thanks in no small part to one very special person, a young nun by the name of Sister Kathy Sesnick. Kathy was my English teacher and also the drama club coach, and I was in the drama club for two years. So I saw her in a classroom setting, and I saw her in her drama setting. She truly was Julie Andrews. I mean, that sounds so tacky, but she was fresh air in that building. I can remember we did a, a number in this play that was from the song Tonight from West Side Story. Oh, yeah, of course. And the group I was in... We were in flannel shirts and jeans in front of these big screens like you would change your clothes behind. And halfway through the song, we ran behind the screens and we had all like borrowed like prom dresses from people in our neighborhood, like used. And they were all hanging there. And Kathy like ran down the row, zipping everybody up and like helping us like get our shoes off and get the heels on. And then we like walked out like real gracious, like Vanna White, like we had been like that all the time. And I was like, this is so darn cool that she's fixing us up for the pretend prom. Gemma adored Sister Kathy so much that she says the nun inspired her to one day become a teacher too. There was something about the way she taught using the Socratic method that made students feel like important people with important thoughts. If she put a question out there, and we would respond, she would ask us to support our thinking or um, to repeat the question. And then she'd dig a little deeper. Well, how do you know? What made you think that way? Did something in your life impact you when you were a kid that's making you think that way? So that is the way teachers teach now, where the students are doing the learning and they're teaching themselves. And Kathy was doing it 50 years ago so that there was never a lecture. It was always us engaging in 
reading a novel together, and we would take the dialogue of different characters, and we'd become the people in the book, and she would become that person with us. So it was always digging deeper and always quality. There was no busy work, you know, unless she was sick, I guess, and somebody gave you a hundred vocabulary words to, to look up. But um, no, she engaged us and we taught each other and she facilitated our learning and that works. That works in a classroom. She taught her students accountability, pushing them to see the full picture of the world around them and how they fit into it. And this meant fearlessly standing up for what was right. January 1970, the decomposed body of 26-year-old sister Kathy Sesnick is discovered in a field in Lansdowne, a murder that has gone unsolved for decades. A recent WJZ investigation reveals many women sexually abused by Father Joseph Maskell believe Sister Kathy was killed because she was about to blow the whistle on his dirty secret. She confronted him and she lost her life for it. Sister Kathy's murder shocked the halls of Archbishop Keogh, and the rest of Baltimore, for that matter. Gemma was a senior at the time, and Sister Kathy had actually gone on to teach at a public school for her last few semesters. Kathy went missing several months prior to her body being found. The story went that one night in November of 1969, Kathy left her apartment at around 7 p.m. to go buy a wedding gift for her sister, stop by the bank, and get some groceries. And she never returned. Then, around 11.30 p.m., her roommate and fellow nun named Sister Russell Phillips started to worry. She called two friends of theirs, priests Jerry Koob and Peter McKeon. And together, they called the police to report Kathy missing. And then, in the wee hours of the following morning, Koob and McKeon left, only to discover Kathy's car had been returned, and it was oddly parked. It was jutting out of a driveway entry across the street. On the outside, the car was muddy. On the inside, the keys were in the ignition, along with a small branch across the dashboard. It occurred to them that whoever parked the car there wanted it to be found. And things got darker. Just three days after Sister Kathy went missing, another young woman in the area disappeared too. Her name was Joyce Malecki. She was 20 years old, and she'd also gone shopping one evening, never to return. But her car was found, unlocked, also with the keys in the ignition. Her body was found a few days later, submerged on the bank of a nearby river. But it would take months for Sister Kathy's body to be found in the woods. As you heard in that news clip, many people believe Kathy was killed because she knew too much about horrifying acts of abuse going on behind closed doors with some of the priests at the school. This realization would come years and years later, though, as the victims began sharing their experiences. And the story of what happened to Sister Kathy merged with the stories of survivors and former students at Keogh. And by that point, as a fully-fledged adult in her 60s, Gemma began putting the pieces together with the help of an old friend and classmate. Together, they'd set off in search of answers to their many outstanding questions. Hey, girl, guess who's back? Is it Liquid IV? Liquid IV! here, my favorite. So you know about Liquid IV. It's the hydration multiplier, remember? I live on it. I've got the cotton candy. I've got the lemon. I've got the tangerine. My glass runneth over with Liquid IV always. Yeah, it's always more than half full with Liquid yeah. IV. You know what I mean? <laughs> so 
So one stick of liquid IV hydration multiplier in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone because it has all these electrolytes. It has premium ingredients, non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, soy. It's the greatest. Also, it's so effective because of the science of cellular transport technology. Fam, I know, big words, but it's designed to enhance rapid absorption of water and other key ingredients into the bloodstream. I gotta tell you, when I had the COVID, I was drinking this all day long and it was like I needed it in my body and it just made me feel better. You know what's wild when you can actually feel it working, which I know yes. sounds so fake, but if you have a headache because you're dehydrated yes. and you can like feel the headache slowly going away because you're getting more and more hydrated by the minute, it's amazing. Liquid IV, we love you. It also just makes me drink more water. When you dump that stick into your water, it's like a little bit lightly sweetened. It's just delicious. There's no reason not to be obsessed with the Liquid IV. Right. So grab Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WORK at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code WORK at liquidiv.com. Experience better hydration today at liquidiv.com with the promo code WORK. And get that cotton candy, fam. You'll thank me. Yeah, get all the cotton candy and save the tangerine for me. Thanks. (laughs) Just a small request. Now, as you heard Gemma state at the top of the episode, she self-identifies as a badass. And I've interviewed enough of those on this podcast to certify that, yeah, she is correct. It's in her, but she also learned to be one. In other words... Kathy was a badass. She gave her life for her girls. I mean, she knew she was in trouble. She knew people wanted to hurt her. And that didn't stop her from listening to girls who had been abused and doing something about it. And I do believe that she did the right thing and reported it. That's why she had to go. That's why she had to be destroyed. Sister Kathy was a trusted presence for the girls at Keo when Gemma went there. She said it was common to poke your head in her room for a chat between classes. From Gemma's experience, Sister Kathy and Sister Russell provided welcoming ears to all kinds of issues a teenage girl at a prestigious Catholic school could have, including abuse by the handful of powerful priests in the building. Flash forward to the mid-90s, and this conversation around abuse at Keough finally rises to the surface on a more visible level when two alumni come forward, a Jane Doe and a Jane Rowe, to share their stories. Both suffered sexual trauma at the hands of the school's chaplain, Father Joseph Maskell, as well as other bad actors led in by him, including a local gynecologist, Dr. Christian Richter, another administrator, Father Neil Magnus, and an unidentified man referred to in The Keepers as Brother Bob. I'll spare you the details, but Maskell had a system of predation and self-protection in place at the school and beyond. He got away with consistent rape and degradation of these young, smart, promising girls. And get this, instead of ever removing him from power, the Archdiocese of Baltimore moved Maskell around the city, from church to school to church to school throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So it's no surprise that many young people outside of Keough fell victim to Maskell's rampant career of abuse as well. The Doe-Roe lawsuit was ultimately thrown out due to Maryland's deeply unreasonable three-year-long statute of limitations. But Jane Doe and Jane Roe conjured a storm by speaking up. For one, they began a larger conversation on the topic of recovered memories, which come to exist when abuse or traumatic incidents happen to people at a young age, only to be uncovered many years later. This was the case for both of them. And even if their individual experiences were legally tossed aside, what about the cover-up? 
What about others who could have suffered too? It became a bombshell. So enter our token good guy in this tale, investigative journalist Tom Nugent. He covered the Doe Row case through the 90s. And by the early 2000s, he wanted to revisit the topic of just exactly what went down at that school, particularly as it related to Sister Kathy's murder. He came to Baltimore and he went over to Archbishop Keogh and the principal gave him permission to look at yearbooks and he copied lots of names of people that were in, you know, alumni during the years that Kathy was there. So it would have been like the class of 69, the class of 70 and the class of 71, because those were the three years that I was there while she was there. So he started calling people. My phone rang and we started talking and he asked me what kind of person she was. And I, like I told you, and he said, you know, what kind of impact did she make? And I said, well, she's the reason I became a teacher. In 2005, he published a story in Baltimore City Paper called Who Killed Sister Kathy? As Gemma puts it, the article, quote, ruffled some feathers and it led others to come out of the woodwork. People started contacting Gemma, as she was mentioned in the article, and she parlayed them to Tom, staying in the loop along the way. So what we did was I looped them into an email and I stayed in the circle so that they wouldn't be like out there with this strange guy asking him personal questions, right? right? So it's like, Gemma's there, it's okay. So with that, I posted on the Archbishop Keogh alumni page that if anybody had any information about any of the abuse at Keogh, to please get in touch with me. Well, I got kicked off the page because they said that doesn't belong on here. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) They want information about people having babies and graduations and awards. And I'm sorry, it's not my thing. So um, somebody go to bat for me and get me back on. But Gemma wasn't the only one wanting to talk about this. Because two women from that Facebook group went ahead and made another one called AKHS Survivors. It would be a place to talk about stories of abuse. It was a support group and still exists to this day, actually. Then I made the mistake of asking if anybody had any information about Kathy's murder. Well, then everybody on that page got pissed off at me. Like, well, we're not here to talk about murder. We're here to talk about abuse. And, you know, people are sensitive. And it taught me what triggering is. So then, those same two women who made this group helped Gemma create another one called Justice for Sister Kathy and Joyce Malecki. People could go there to discuss the 1969 murders of these two women. And while there, Gemma recognized a commenter who was pretty active on the survivors page and migrated to this one. Her name was Abby Schaub. So Archbishop Keogh High School was built in the mid-60s. And when it opened, they just put in one class at a time. So, for example, the first year it was open, there was just like 300 girls all in one class. And then they moved up to be sophomores, and I was in the second class. Abby was as well. Now, we were in each other's classes, but she was like super, super smart and very left-brained. And I was more like right-brained and probably... We would not have, like, communicated very well then, but she was my math tutor for a while because I was, like, the bottom of the top group. 
They started talking, and that dynamic came right back. Gemma said they both had good detective instincts, but described herself as the more emotional one. Abby, more logical. And around 2013, they began working together to try and answer the question of Sister Kathy's fate. What happened to her? What we knew up till that point about the night Kathy disappeared was what was in the newspapers at the time in 1969 and what Gerard Koob, Kathy's friend, told us because he's the only person that was there and had some interaction with her that night. It kind of just came naturally to each of us because she always was good at research. So if somebody gave her a list of names or places, she'd be digging around in the archives building in Annapolis, you know, the next day. I went with her one day. You see her in that setting in the movie. And they gave us the hearing notes from the Doro hearings. I cried sitting there through most of it. And Abby, who was also a retired nurse, she looked at it differently. She looked at it as helpful information. And I'm like sick at my stomach at what I'm reading. And now that I know these two women, I just can't imagine these things happening to somebody and then them having to talk about it to mostly men in a courtroom. And a few years into this endeavor, a small documentary crew joined them to cover the story of this murder, but also the story of these two women revisiting an old mystery. And that footage would eventually become The Keepers. So we kind of fell into our roles naturally. So I spent most of my time talking to people, going to see people, literally knocking on doors in certain neighborhoods with the documentary filmmakers following me around. And then we'd kind of reconvene and share information with each other. And we talked on the phone. We corresponded at night. We were both night owls. And I still am. People think I'm crazy, but I'm retired. What the heck? So it's not unusual for me to be up until like three or maybe four sometimes. That's when I... I shop, I read, I watch movies on my tablet. That's my second half of my day. And then I'll sleep till 11, but she's the same way. So a lot of our correspondence would happen in the middle of the night and I'd be like, okay, here's what I heard from Joe Schmo. What do you think? And she would like, we just reflect back and forth. Late night calls turned into new leads, new connections. There's a super charming scene in The Keepers with Gemma and Abby seated at a dining room table, surrounded by coffee filters with suspects' names written on them. If you haven't seen it, it may sound silly, but I'm telling you, it's very inspiring to watch. And something else inspiring was how these two wove together these survivors' stories into their understanding of Sister Kathy's death. They ended up connecting with both plaintiffs from the Doe-Roe case. Jane Roe would turn out to be Teresa Lancaster. And Jane Doe is a woman named Jean Hargaden Wainer. First, Teresa came on that page and said, I am Jane Roe. And Teresa never had forgotten anything that happened to her. She just didn't, you know, since the 90s, the Doe Roe case, she didn't think people would believe her. And she finally found people that believed her, right? So she and I are buddies, and we talk often at least once a week. And Jean later came onto the page and said, I am Jane Doe. She came on the Keogh Survivors page. And we were like, oh, yay. You know, it was wonderful. 
So both have been very guarded publicly, Jean more so than anybody. So the first time I met her was at the the Double T Diner. That was our regular meeting place where the tripod filmmakers would take us to eat. So anyway, Jean said, I, I would like to meet you and Abby. So I'd only ever seen a picture of her from her yearbook. So Abby and I got there and she came in laughing with her red hair and her freckles. She is adorable, but she was very smart. She knew she had someplace to go afterwards so that there was a limited time. She was vetting us, you know, she was checking us out because everybody had always left. People that were supporting her and helping her other than her family, they left and we weren't going to leave, but she didn't know that. So we had like a nice half hour visit with promises to keep in touch, which we did. Jean is ostensibly the main character in The Keepers. Because not only did she uncover memories of abuse by Father Maskell and his band of fuckwads, she also held a memory that was key to the story of Sister Kathy's death. She later recalled that as a student at Keogh, Father Maskell walked her into the woods and showed her Kathy's dead body. So I'm going slow with it, but she's filling in gaps for me. And a couple years ago, she told me specifically where Maskell took her, like geographically where he took her, and that she had found the place while she was with the filmmakers and left some flowers there. And I just kept it to myself. But it is right behind the Schmidt shop. Schmidt as in Billy Schmidt, who was Kathy's next door neighbor at the time she went missing. During their investigation, Gemma and Abby were actually contacted by Schmidt's niece, a woman named Sharon, who suspected her uncle had something to do with the murder, sort of as a cleanup crew guy, maybe hired by Maskell. Sharon's brother, Brian, told a researcher late in life about a memory he had of a relative keeping him occupied while Billy and a friend disposed of a rolled up rug in the woods. According to the family, in the years following Kathy's death, Uncle Billy would yell about, quote, the woman in the attic. He died by suicide not long after that as well. And in fact, another niece of another man approached them too, with similar suspicions of her uncle. His name was Edgar Davidson, and he came home wearing a bloody shirt the night Kathy went missing. Days later, when Kathy's disappearance hit the news, Edgar apparently leaned back in his rocking chair and smirked. He apparently said he expected the body to be buried under snow by the time anyone would find it. So these pieces, including these extra characters, came together in Jean's story about encountering Kathy's body. And it is about not even 100 yards from where Kathy's body was found. So Monumental Road ends at the railroad tracks at an old distillery. It's called the Majestic Distillery, old creepy brick building. And she explains in the book exactly where on the distillery grounds she was taken. Now, I believe her that she was taken there because she claims that there were live maggots on Kathy's face. November was warm. Kathy disappeared early November, and this happened just a few weeks after that, that Maskell took her there. So she's wiping these ant larvae away from Kathy's face 
And then in another episode, we see James Scannell, Officer Scannell, saying out of the blue, well, you know, there were no maggots or anything. Ah, the maggots. Let's address them, too. Per Jean's account, she knelt down, distraught to see the body of the beloved nun, and wiped maggots from her face. And you'll see in The Keepers that Gemma approached a retired Baltimore police officer named, as she said, James Skinnell. He denied that there were any maggots on the body since it was winter, discrediting Jean's story. So I have Kathy's autopsy. Her family gave me a copy of it. And I've answered questions about it, but I'm never going to publish it anywhere. That's nobody's business. But I did research on maggots. And I believe that because it was warm, there were maggots there. And this is kind of gross, trigger warning. But as it gets colder, they burrow deeper into tissue. So when Kathy was found, there were no obvious maggots, but they were in her esophagus and her stomach because that's where they went. And Werner Spitz, who's famous worldwide, we did a podcast with him and I thought I was going to pee my pants. I was so excited. He's, I mean, yeah. And I thought, okay, who are you going to believe? Werner Spitz, who says, yes, there's maggots in her trachea and esophagus. And Gemma, who looked up the life cycle of a damn maggot to see that it was totally possible. Or are we going to believe James Scannell, who's a, a dirty cop, and uh, brought it up out of the, you know, out of the blue. Right. And Jean, we believe exactly. Jean too, right? Exactly. Yep. So with that, I truly believe that that happened. I would not be surprised if there are other girls who were taken to see her body. There is one woman who kind of alluded to that and then freaked out when the filmmakers wanted to include her and she went to another country. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what trauma does to you. You know what? Kathy was murdered early in Maskell's abuse career. So once he was gone, everybody else is going to keep their mouth shut, which is why I think Russell never told anybody anything. She had to decide, do I want to protect myself and my family or do I want to tell the truth? What would you do? I'd protect myself and my family. I don't want to be murdered which is what would have happened if she had told anybody anything. But soon enough, Gemma would realize that investigating this murder would come at a cost, too. Hey, girl, we got a new one. Billion Dollar Box is here. Tell me everything about the Billion Dollar Box. You know I love my makeup sometimes, right? I know it doesn't seem like it, but I really do. So Billion Dollar Beauty believes you should have the option to purchase just the shades and products you actually use without sacrificing quality or convenience. The other thing, girl, the completely customizable compact Billion Dollar Box is a sustainable solution to expensive, excessively packaged makeup palettes. Right, so I love this for tour, obviously, because the Billion Dollar Box is a portable makeup kit that uses its spill-proof magnetic lining and kickstand mirror lid to secure a full line of professional quality, cruelty-free cosmetics. Also, fam, all the products for your box come in minimal, recycled packaging and are paraben-free, vegan, and Leaping Bunny certified cruelty-free. We love that. Yeah, there are over 40 beauty pans and products to add to your billion dollar box. There's this number one best-selling universal brow pencil, magnetic brush trio, and the highlighter. They, I've used highlighter now, thanks to Billion Dollar 
<laughs> for nearly 20 years, Billion Dollar Beauty has been trusted by salon and beauty professionals around the world, from Japan to Australia. Yeah, and you may have seen them in the clean beauty section of Target, publications like Vogue, Allure, Glamour, or even on the runways of LA and New York Fashion Week. Come on. So fam, join the refill revolution and build your own Billion Dollar Box at BillionDollarBeauty.com and receive 20% off your entire purchase when you enter code WORK at checkout. It's so cute. It makes packing so much easier. Honestly, I love it so much. Yeah, and I love you so much. Oh, yeah, you're my billion dollar box. <laughs> now, before we keep going, let's address the elephant in the room here, shall we? I know that on this podcast, we speak to many people who maybe we first meet through a screen, through documentaries. And I love documentaries. That's why I do this day in and day out for you, dear listener. But even I realize that documentaries are produced in such a way that connects us to the characters on screen. And in The Keepers, Gemma and Abby both are shown in a favorable light as these intrepid citizen detectives on the case. But a lot of people in The Keepers, and a lot who watched it, had to relive real trauma in the process of engaging with this documentary. So Gemma and Abby faced some backlash as the narrators of this thing. And that's part of their story, too. That was their design and their dream and their vision. And people jumped on me because I'm out there. I'm not afraid to talk to people on the street. I say yes to interviews that are legit. I'm pretty frank about what I know and what I've heard, but I also am good at keeping confidences. So some of those people have come around, and I have to remember that some people who traumatized were re-traumatized by the keepers and see I grew up in a fairly functional family I was never hurt I was never abused physically mentally emotionally we lived in a row house it was six of us plus my grandmother and we made it work and with one bathroom and I really had a happy childhood so I don't have any of that in my past to haunt me and so I have to understand the source of the frustration might be somebody else's trauma that they're working out. A therapist said to me, Gemma, what happens if a lifeguard goes out to save somebody? Well, the swimmer tries to take the lifeguard down with them. And she said, that's what's going on. You're trying to help, but you're an easy target. And the mask has gone. There's nobody to blame. The church is turning its back. And so you're a public figure and people know you. And so that's why they're going after you. So I, I understand it. I don't like it. And I ignore it now. I've risen above it. But yeah, that's what's happened. Now, once The Keepers was released, Abby pulled away from the spotlight. But I've continued with trying to find out who hurt Kathy and also doing what I can to advocate for survivors who don't have a voice, because I have a big voice. And I can tell you about that in a minute. It's gotten me in trouble. One of Gemma's big new inquiries is the identity of the supposed Brother Bob we mentioned. Brother Bob played a big role in Jean's story, not only as an accomplice and perpetrator of abuse, but as someone who, according to her account, boasted about killing Sister Kathy himself. Her memories of him are vague and faceless, but Gemma thinks she knows who he was. Not a priest, but a cop. A young man 
from St. Clement's Parish contacted me and told me that this guy used to, you know, he was a cop, rode around with Maskell, yelling at kids to get off the street. And had I ever looked at him, now the name Bob, oh my God, there's like a million Bobs in this story. We've had everybody from, I don't know, like a big long list. But I believe that the one that was sent to me by this young man is it. And I got in touch with his first wife, who was very guarded. But then she called me like five times in the next two days and told me information about him that was horrifying. He tortured her. He had weird billy clubs made, customized. He had a stiletto in his belt buckle. So I sent it to five women. They all recognized him. One said he was the most violent abuser, which made me think about Jean. Jean responded that she recognized him, but she was not going to say that he was Brother Bob. Jean, that's her business. The others remembered clearly their interactions with this man and He's dead, but I think I'm right. And I bring up Brother Bob and Gemma's theory as to who he was to get to this. The element of police in the story and their entanglement with Maskell and other corrupt clergymen was appalling. Time and time again throughout Abby and Gemma's research, it was shown how protective these two entities of powerful men were of each other back in the day. And still. And trigger warning here. What follows is a graphic mention of sexual violence. Well, this is where it gets dangerous, right? Because some of those guys are still living. But I, I have the names of about 10 men who were involved in the abuse, the cover-up, possibly the murder. And that thin blue line is not real thin. And I think that every time I shared something with the police... They had to decide, do they want to use it or not? Because the children and grandchildren of these officers are living and are not responsible for what their fathers and grandfathers did. We still see police corruption, but this was like bad, real bad. Teresa was taken to an orgy in a state park and she was in the backseat of Maskell's car, and she said it was a circle of black and white police cars, and the officers were in the cars and on the ground raping girls, and Maskell said, you're going to be next, and she was forced to give an officer oral sex through a window. She stayed in the car. We're talking people that don't have morals, And so, between her experiences at Keo, the experiences of her classmates, all of these bad actors and details and blurry circumstances, what does Gemma think happened that November night in 1969? And what about three nights later, when Joyce Malecki went missing? I believe that she came back to the parking lot, and I believe that someone she knew was there. I don't think she would be interacting with strangers. Kathy was pretty feisty. Coop says if she was threatened, she'd be like, 
terrified and would freeze. I don't believe that. That's not Kathy. She'd be more like we are. She'd be like, I don't think so. You know, I think she fought. I think that whoever accosted her in the parking lot got into her car on the driver's side and pushed her over to the passenger side. I think there was another man in the back seat. Kathy's autopsy shows little abrasions like from a knife, a bunch of them on the front of her neck. And in my head, I'm picturing somebody driving and somebody holding her around the neck from the back seat. There was a report that a woman or somebody saw a woman trying to get out of a car on the street and the driver pulling her back in. I believe that it was Brother Bob who killed her. And I think that, I don't know if they meant to do it, but she was going to go to the police or already had. And I think that uh, Maskell probably choreographed the whole thing, but he also had a lot of money and a lot of connections. And he would have been able, I think Billy and Edgar were the cleanup crew. And I believe their nieces, which was unusual that both of them found us, you know, one through a tip line and one through the Facebook page. And, and they've never met each other. And both saying, I think my uncle, you know, was involved in Kathy's death. I do. Yeah, I think Edgar Davidson, like, knew everything. And there are actually six murders that we think were connected. One of them was just solved, and it has nothing to do with this story. But the person that did it, and it was proven by DNA, he's dead. But he lived right in the middle of Lansdowne where all this happened. So anyway... And I I do think Joyce's murder is connected to Kathy's. Hey, girl, Athletic Greens is here. Here's the thing, fam. This is super healthy, and I got to tell you, I'm really into it. I started taking Athletic Greens because I was looking for something that would give me more energy and something that would help, like, optimize my immune system. Tell the people what Athletic Greens is. Yeah, so it's all about this powder called AG1. So it's one scoop of AG1. You're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. So I start my day with this and it really has made a difference. I just feel better and more like ready for the day. The only thing that held me back from trying it was I thought it was going to be gross tasting and it's not. You put a little scoop in your water. It actually tastes really good and it makes you feel like you're drinking like a green smoothie because <laughs> it's it's green. And here's the thing. It's super cost effective. It costs less than $3 a day and you're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. So if you're going to have something in the morning, have AG1. You know what I mean? Instead of something else that's not as good for you. Athletic Greens, the company here, was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up in a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost them a hundred bucks a day. Yeah, and now cut to Athletic Greens having over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's so good! Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's all you need. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, fam, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one your supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash women. Again, it's athleticgreens.com slash women to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It makes me feel good about myself. I like knowing that I'm doing something nice for myself first thing in the morning. Come on. Hey, me too. Uh, Nutrients. Love them. <laughs> 
Joyce and Kathy's cases remain unsolved, and no one has ever been charged in connection to either of their deaths. In 2016, the Baltimore Police Department reassigned Kathy's case to new officers. And in 2017, Maskell's body was exhumed to obtain a DNA sample. It didn't match anything collected at the crime scene, but he's not ruled out as a suspect yet. Over 50 years on, and it's still not the end of the story, for Gemma and for everyone else invested. The state attorney general's office is currently doing an investigation into clergy abuse. And Gemma says over the last few years, she and Jean have sent witnesses of all kinds their way. The other thing, I don't know how this happened. It was like manna from heaven. At the end of the summer, a gentleman from the Maryland Crime Victims Resource Center got in touch with me. I never heard of them before. They are a nonprofit group of attorneys and investigators that do pro bono work. And they are like, okay, we saw the, the director said, I saw the series. I'm like probably the last person in the world to see it for the first time. So don't get mad at me, but you guys are working really hard and we can help you. And I was like, why would you want to do that? I like vet people like you wouldn't believe. Why would you want to do that? His name's Kurt Wolfgang. And I was like, Kurt Wolfgang, yeah, right. And now I laugh about it. He said, because it's the right thing to do. And so right now they are doing work that the police have not done. Uh, I've been contacted by two people who told me there's more stuff buried in two different cemeteries. And they are making field trips there with those people and possibly might get a subpoena. Um, They're doing some things. They're representing some of the survivors to get more information from the attorney general about the investigation. There are a number of alleged allegations of abuse against an individual that was involved in all of this. It's still living and they're going to push for indictments So they're very helpful. They're wonderful. A lot I can't share because it's all confidential. But there are people out there that are doing this because it's the right thing to do. As for Gemma, we can't forget the girl who was raised in a heavily Catholic corner of Baltimore and who rose up to revisit the church with a critical eye. I had to ask her how her faith has changed, if it's even there anymore. It is, she says. It's pretty simple. I deal direct. I deal direct. I don't go through a minister. I don't go through a priest. They're human beings. They're not better than anybody else. I talk to my husband. I talk to my mom. I talk to Kathy. I'm like, what would Kathy do? Because they would all do something different. And once I get through all the conversations, I have an answer. But you know where I find my faith? I walk out on the beach, on the B-E-A-C-H, and I sit down on the sand, and I throw a ball about a hundred times to my puppy, and I look at the sky, because nobody can explain the sky. There's no explanation for it. You can explain the ocean, you can explain the sand, but when you look at the sky, it never ends. So I don't know how anybody cannot believe that there's a God out there when we're looking at infinity. There's nobody that can explain the sky, and to me, that's enough. So, yeah, but the Catholic religion, 
This has been going on since the Middle Ages. And if I can be one little cog in the wheel that will help it stop, that's all I care about. I'm probably more outspoken than anybody else that's been involved in this. And that's okay with me because I think this is why I was born. And that's the name of my book, Keeping On, How I Came to Know Why I Was Born. And I do believe that this is part of it. I have to be very careful not to let it take over my whole life. But there's something going on with the Baltimore County Police that I'm not supposed to know. And, you know, I'm nosy, but I don't even call, and somebody else is handling the case now. I don't even call over there. I don't, they're not going to tell me anything because no. I think I already know what happened. I mean, that sounds very cocky on my part, but I put a lot of work into this. I was and, just going to say, yeah, yeah. 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 Gary Childs, the other detective that was in this, he said, Gemma, you've done more work than we have. There you go. Yep. Yeah. There it is. So I, I hope I live long enough to see if I'm right. If not, when I die, I hope I get on the up elevator and that the people who know the answers are going to be up there either giving me a thumbs up or, you know, like Sister Kathy, my mom, my husband, they're going to go, you did a damn good job, Gemma, or are they going to say, like, sorry, you weren't right, and, you know, but welcome anyway. <laughs> Gemma has made good on a lot of promises to her angels above. And if you want to know more about her story, check out her book, Keeping On, How I Came to Know Why I Was Born. And for an even deeper dive into Sister Kathy's case, check out season two of the Foul Play podcast with investigative journalist Shane Waters, crime writer Wendy C., and of course, the incomparable Gemma Hoskins. And check out the Sister Kathy Sesnick Fund for Survivors, started and run by Gemma and her fellow Keogh alumni, to provide financial assistance to survivors of sexual abuse seeking treatment. There's a link to it in the show notes. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network, and it's produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me, Jillian Pensavalli. And our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G. And remember, just let the women do the work. And to go back to like, let the women do the work, Okay, I had a boyfriend once. We were cleaning up for a deck party, and I was washing the table. And he said, wash that table, woman. <gasps> okay, so you got to be careful about <laughs> let the women do the work. No, that, no we took, mean it. Yeah, you know. I know. I took the rag, and I threw it at his head. Hell yeah, because that's what like, badasses do. Mm, yeah. No. Okay, you don't no, do it's that. More don't talk like, to me that way. Get out of the way. We'll handle it. Right. That's more right. what it's about. Right. 